All right, let's turn to Second Peter, though, and let's continue to look through uh, what God has done for us uh, and how we respond to that. So just setting back up the, the passage like we like to do every week because we're not sure who's was here last week and who's not keeping up on the podcast or keeping up on Facebook Live, which if you're not, you're in trouble because if we give you Facebook Live and the podcast and you can't listen to either one of those, uh, that's on you. Uh, it is important to always keep up uh, if you're sick, that's a good thing to remind people in time of sickness. If you miss, catch up with the scripture reading because you are obligated to do that as a member of the church body. This is a passage that we are going through as a church body. You can't just choose to not hear it. Uh, it would be a, it would be a good thing to uh, keep up with the body as a whole. So during times of sickness, that's always a good thing to remind people of. You may be snotty today. Uh, but you can still listen to God's word uh, any time and keep up with the church body. So God has graciously saved us. Uh, that's what we've seen in the, the start of Second Peter. He's, he's gifted us. It's all about what God has given and gifted us. Salvation rests all on him. He has given us by lot faith. Right? It's not because of us, not because of our righteousness, as we've seen a couple of times that we even have faith. Uh, that God has by lot gifted us with faith. It is purely grace. He has gifted us everything we need for life and godliness, or as we saw it last week, Godwardness. Uh, and then he's given us his, his gifted us his precious and, and very great promises that enable us to escape from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desires. That's all the things that God has done for us. So what are we supposed to do? How do we respond? We see, you know, Romans chapter 12, that your life is supposed to be this living sacrifice to the Lord. What does that look like? What does it look like to, because of Romans 1 through 11, what does it look like to do Romans 12? Because of 2 Peter verses 1 through 3 or 1 through 4, what does it look like to respond to that? Uh, and we've seen him start to tell us we, we speedily, we quickly get to work and make every effort is that that Greek word for speed where we get the word speed do this do this quickly it was a, a word that meant haste or get get about this right away that's why make every effort do all that you can to uh to get these things dancing with your faith the faith is in you faith's tune is playing in your heart these are the things you want to add to that. And again, we say not add like your faith is lacking, but faith is doing this. God has given you faith. These things can now and will now be at work in you. So get them working well, tune them up. Uh, and so we saw that uh, to, to our faith, we, we have excellence or, or virtue. Uh, same word that we saw that, that uh, he has uh, called us uh, to his glory and excellence. That same word there. Uh, we are to live an excellent Christian life. We are to be excellent at what we do to excel. Uh, we see that we add to excellence or virtue knowledge to that discipline or self-control. Remember the word there was inner strength. Uh, a disciplined life like an athlete. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 was a passage that was very influential uh, there. Uh, we faithfully endure. That's uh, that word for steadfastness. We remain under anything you're going through. You endure faithfully to the end. You don't just endure to the end. You endure faithfully to the end of anything that you're going through, any struggle, any hardship. Uh, be faithful to the end because God's given you everything you need for life and godliness, right? So you can do it. Uh, so do what you can do. 
And uh, last week we saw that uh, godliness or God-wordness, that word there, devoted to the good. A life devoted to, and the ultimate good, of course, being God. That's why uh, you see, you know, translations that translate it godliness, even though the word God isn't in that word. It's a recognition that there's no greater good than God. So to be devoted to God, to live a God-word life, uh, to live a life devoted to him. But that's not the end. So let's look at this passage that we've been looking at now for a few weeks uh, and see the next things on this list. Let's stand in the honor of reading God's word. Such a gift, such a blessing. Uh, and now uh, we will honor that. Uh, but again, we want to not just be standing in our bodies, but uh, in our hearts, uh, submitting to the Lord and to his word as well. Let's begin in verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue, knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Let's pray. God, we thank you that as we look at this list, it is really all about what you've done in us. Father, how you have given us faith, how you've gifted us with all that we need for life and godliness. And now, because of all you've done, because of what you've gifted us to be able to do, Father, we can now put those tools to work. And Father, I pray we would make every effort to do that. That our lives would be one where we are speedily, quickly, hastily putting these things in our lives. That as soon as the sermon is over, as soon as we're done reading the text, that our hearts are not, you know, well, what did I think of that? <laughs> but rather, how can I get that in my life? I need that. I need that Godwardness. I need that steadfastness. I need those things. I've got to get them. How can I do that? And Father, I pray and rejoice that your spirit teaches us exactly how to do those things, convicting us, encouraging us, equipping us to do all that your word is calling us to do. So thank you, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're now, we're on to the last two words of this list. Uh, The last two words here uh, and these last two virtues uh, all focus on Christian uh, love, love really in the Christian life. It's not surprising that love should end our list. As we mentioned before, when we first looked at this list, just in general, faith and love often serve as sort of bookends to these lists, and and we'll look explicitly at love uh, next week. Uh, But the idea often being faith is the source of the Christian, of all these Christian virtues, and love is like the climax or goal of Christian uh, virtue. So with that, if we're talking about love, what sort of love should Christians have? 
And this first one is going to be a world-altering love. It is going to be a love that is both different from the world and a love that mixes up your world. And it says here, with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection. So the next item on our list, what what should we do as Christians? What should we hastily, speedily get to work with the, the faith driving it? Christians are to love one another like family. And maybe like family is bad. Maybe it should say Christians should love one another as family or because they are family. The the word here is actually one we're very familiar with. This word brotherly affection is actually one word in the Greek. Uh, It's a word, again, that we're famous, that we know in America. The word is... Philadelphia. It's a combination of the word love, philos, and the word brother, adelphos. Phil adelphos. Love of brothers. It's a, it's a brotherly type of love. Ultimately, that idea being not just the way you love your brother, but a family type of love. It is a familial love, it, it is, which is, again, why Philadelphia is called the city of what? Brotherly love. It's like saying, hey, Philadelphia is the city of Philadelphia. Uh, Yeah, it's the city of brotherly love. Because that's what that word Philadelphia means. But it is not surprising for us to find here in this list that God would make a point to say, hey, it's important for believers to make sure that they're loving each other as family. Christians are told throughout Scripture, especially a focus in the New Testament, that we are to recognize that other believers are our family. And that we are to treat other believers like we would treat family. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us, right? Okay, okay, I'll treat churches like they're family. But the word Philadelphia is when God uses this word in the New Testament, he's actually making a pretty big point. Because the word Philadelphia is actually almost exclusively a Christian word. The pagan world had their own word that they used, a word that we often use, still, a word for loving people. Instead of Phil Adelphos, they had Phil Anthropos. Philanthropos, philanthropy, a word that meant love of people. Anthropos meaning people. So instead of Phil Adelphos, a love of brothers, the world said we need to have Phil Anthropos, a love for mankind in general. We still use that word today when we say that someone is a philanthropist. They're a lover of people. So they gave their money, which is Odd, that's the only way you become a philanthropist is when you give the world your money, uh, which shows the world's vision of how you show your love. Uh, and also sometimes ours, Christian, if you keep track of how much money you spend on each person at Christmas, right? Uh, I have loved them $20 worth. Uh, 
Uh, so I've got to love everybody $20 worth of love. Uh, <laughs> I do the same thing, so don't think I'm like getting on to you if you do that. Uh, but we still use that. So the world says, hey, we need to have a philanthropos. We need to have a love of mankind. But God doesn't call his people to that. God makes a point of instead of using the typical word that would have been used in Greek society and would have been familiar with the first century uh, people, he makes a point not to call his people to philanthropos, but to call his people to philadelphos. Not just a general love for man, but a particularly love for our Christians that recognizes they are our brothers and sisters. Again, we know that that doesn't mean we're not called to love everyone. But it does mean that there is a recognition that because of Christ, you and I as believers are not just people in the same world as we would be with everybody else. We're all, you know, created in God's image and there needs to be a recognition of that and, a, and a, you know, uh, uh, which Peter himself talked about in First Peter when he said, uh, honor everyone or treat everyone as precious. Remember that word tomeo, uh, treat everyone as precious. But here he says specifically for Christians, we are to love each other like someone loves their brothers and sisters. That because of Christ, we're not just people in the same world. Because of Christ, we are now brothers and sisters in the same family. Well, why does he call us to that particular family love? Why does he say, you know, hey, love each other like family? What's distinct about that versus just loving people in general? Well, the truth is you treat family different. We treat family different than we treat the rest of the world. So if I were to say love everyone or I were to say love family, in your mind, you would recognize there's something different about what? Blood is thicker than water, right? Right? We've got all these ideas that recognize there's something special about family. Okay, I love everyone, but this is family. And so, what God, and, and, and that God's not saying that that's wrong or unusual. In fact, God notes this. He said, this is common. This is just natural, a natural part of how God has made the world. He says, this is common throughout the world, that everyone loves their family different. Now, Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 47, Jesus says, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So Jesus says, look, even the Gentiles treat their family in a special way. Even the Gentiles, even the Gentiles, even those pagan Gentiles love family more than everybody else. So he says, if you just, if you just are nice to your brothers, you're no different than the Gentiles. So it's just natural. Even, even pagans treat family different. What's going to separate Christians isn't that they love family. What's going to distinguish Christians or separate Christians from the world is who they say their family is. That Christians are going to say that this is my family and that it will not just be marked by blood or at least not by their blood, but by Christ's blood. We are blood relatives, but it's because of someone else's blood. And so for the Christian to stand up and say, yes, I love my family and the world can go, me too. And then Christians can go, and she's my family. And the world's going to go, but you're not related to her. And you're going to go, yeah, I am. You want to know how? 
and they're and it's like sucker uh, walked right into that one. That Christians are going to be distinct from the world. Not that they love family, because everyone loves family. I'm not going to get up here and say, "Look, guys, you gotta love your family." That's just natural. But what the Bible distinguishes is to the Christian saying, "Love your family," and now recognize who your family is. So, what does the Bible teach us about? Philadelphia about this brotherly love about loving other believers like family well brotherly love is born out of a recognition that other Christians are truly your family that actually other Christians are a this is important other Christians are a more real and permanent family than your natural family that believers are your new family we, we've talked about this before, that Christians, you are to see these people in this church body as your family with obligations to them that supersede your obligations to your natural family. And you're to love them as you would your brothers and sisters, not just as acquaintances, not even just as really good friends. You are to love them as your family. Again, not like family, because that's to say they're not family, but I'm going to treat them like they're family. Not love them like family, love them because they are family. And that's a very important distinction. Because it's not like, okay, how do I love my mom? I've got to love the rest of the church like that. Or how do I love my brother? I've got to love the rest of the church like I love my brother. It's recognizing, no, this is my brother. This is my mother. These are my family. And that is so mind-bending and hard to do. I love this topic. I love this subject. And I'm not very good at it. It, it is, it is or, or I want to be better at it. I see so many times the, the, the record, this is, this is, this is, and it's meant to be mind blowing. It's meant to be difficult. It's different from the natural thing. This only happens by the spirit. And so it's supposed to be hard. It's, it's, it's intentionally unnatural. God is making a point. This is a supernatural affection. When he says love like family, you're supposed to go, what? This is something that only happens because of the spirit. One, you're only family because of the Spirit. You've all been baptized into one Spirit, right? You're only, you're only family because of the Spirit. You're only family because of Christ. You're only these things, not, not because of anything natural. It's all because of the supernatural work of Christ that you are my brothers and sisters, my mothers and my fathers. Now, it's easy. It's easy to act this way, right? It's easy, it's easy to say things like, you know, hello, brother. Hello, sister. You know, and look, I think you should do that. I think it's a good habit. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's good to do. It's good to, as long as it doesn't just become a token thing that you say, right? Sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so. But where you're actually, do it if it's helping you recognize that they are your brother and sister. Again, it's not a requirement. Just like you don't go, like when I see my Todd, my brother, my natural brother, I don't go, hello, brother, Todd. Like, I'm trying to remind myself, brother, Todd. Uh, 
So eventually, you know, you don't, you don't have to say this, but it is, can be a good reminder that that's who these people are. But it's hard. It's easy to say, but it's hard to actually wrap your mind around that these people are my family. Yet that's exactly what the early church was taught and how God instructed them to feel about one another and how he instructs us to feel about other Christians. Because God intentionally twists this term. God could have said, have a general love for everybody. Have a philanthropos. Love people. Love people. And we would look at that and go, ooh, that is deep. That is good. We need to love mankind. But he doesn't. He specifically creates or uses a new and profound word. Have love for brothers and sisters who are not your natural brothers and sisters, but you're recognizing they are because of Christ, my brothers and sisters. That these aren't just people. These are my family. And it is that family aspect that is the main focus of this word. He could have just said, love everyone. The thing that distinguishes this word, brotherly affection, from any other use of a word is not the affection part, but the brother. Have brotherly, have familial affection for one another. Again, the idea of of brotherly love was not new. What was new was who your brothers are. That the brotherhood, the Christian family encompassed all believers. That was radically, radically different from the world who could be very tribal. The world was very tribal. Even even in scripture, don't we see a lot of the emphasis in genealogies and on who belonged to whose family? But this teaching is saying something radically different that you all trace your family line not through a specific blood relative but to Christ that because of Christ we are all family as believers this this teaching is is not is not new it I think it it, I think it's got its roots in Old Testament hospitality text I think you can see a foreshadowing of it there But it certainly is found in the teachings of Christ. This was a subject that Christ focused on multiple times in his life to teach the believers this. Jesus taught, look, my followers are my true family. He thought that his followers are even more true family than blood. Jesus said that those who hear God's word and do them are his family Luke chapter 8 Luke chapter 8 verse 21 Jesus physical mother and brothers come and the crowds ask him about them and what does Jesus say but he answered them my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it So again, the question was, hey, here's your physical mother and your blood brothers. What do we do with them? 
And Jesus says, look, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. It's not his earthly mother and brothers that automatically fill that role. His family are those who hear the word of God and do it. And of course, his family did do that. His mother and brothers did do that. So they were also still his mother and brothers. In fact, Jesus said that your life in this new family may mean that you lose your old family. Talking to his disciples about what they might go through as the gospel spreads, he told them, look, disciples, this is what may happen to you as he sends them out. He says, brother will deliver brother. This is Matthew chapter 10, verse 21 and 22. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So look, it wouldn't be crazy if we experienced the same, the same thing. And here's the harsh truth. Unless your old family is part of your new family, they are no longer your family. Unless your old family, your blood family is not a part of the Christian family, they are not your true family. Now, again, does that mean you don't have any responsibilities to them? You, you know, hey, you're not a believer. I don't have to obey, honor you as my father and mother. You're not my father and mother anymore right? Or I don't have to love them. I don't have to be kind to them. No, there are other passages that deal with that, but there is the recognition that something very real happens in Christ. Christ's teaching became so central to the faith that Christianity as a whole began to be referred to as the brotherhood. We we saw this already in first Peter, first Peter chapter two, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. That the Christian family was considered, hey, when he said brotherhood, they didn't go, well, who's, who's the brotherhood? So in like a, who is my neighbor sort of question. Well, who's my neighbor? They knew who the brotherhood was. This was the Christian family. Brotherly love is saying, you live then like you believe what Christ has taught. You treat these people like family. Again, not pretending that they're family, you treat them as your family because Christ says that is what they are. So you love them with a natural love that one normally only has for physical family members. Brotherly love is a natural part of the Christian life. And that's why as we go through scripture, we see that this type of love is actually expected of all Christians. In fact, it's not just expected. The Bible says, if you're a Christian, you will love other Christians. You will love them like family. And, and we recognize this sometimes. Have you ever been with someone and you meet them and you find out they're a believer and it's just like you've got this bond and you're just like, you know, like I've only known you for a little bit, but I think I really like you. And you're like, I've known my other brother his whole life, and that's why I don't like him. Well, what is that recognizing? 
That the Spirit does a work in our hearts that enables us to recognize a familiar bond that is there because of the Spirit and not there because of blood. So the Bible says, look, I don't have to tell you as Christians, like when God comes and says, have brotherly love, he's not telling you to do something that's not there. In fact, he's saying this will be in the hearts of believers because he puts it there. So you look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Here, talking about brotherly love, it says, let brotherly love, what? Continue. That's all he says. He doesn't say, hey guys, you want me to start, you want me to tell you about something really shocking that's a part of the Christian faith? I'm going to tell you something that you've never heard before and you're going to have to be like, where's that going to come from? He just says, hey, keep loving each other. Keep having a brotherly love for each other. Again, not just love, but a familial love. Let that continue. Just like you don't have to teach a natural birth family to love each other, the work of God in our hearts is so effective that you don't need to teach other Christians they need to love other Christians. You need to teach them that it's wrong to stop loving other Christians. That's what you need to teach them. You don't need to teach them, hey, you need to love other people. You need to love these brothers and sisters. That is a natural part of being born again. We just need to be encouraged sometimes to keep loving. Like Hebrews 13, 1 does here. Let's let brotherly love continue. Continue. Don't let it stop. In fact, to not love your Christian family God says is the life of someone who must not be a Christian at all themselves. So 1 John chapter 3 verse 10 makes this statement that we're all familiar with. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor what? Nor he who does not love his brother. So how essential... Is brotherly love, is loving other Christians as family, right? How essential is that to the Christian life? Well, if you live an ungodly life, you must not be saved. And we would all say yes to that. We would all go, well, of course. If someone said, I'm a believer, I've been saved, and then they just keep on sinning rampantly, we would ask the same question Spurgeon asked. Well, what have you been saved from? But he doesn't just end there, which is where we would naturally end. John says, just as if someone says they're a Christian, but doesn't live a righteous life, they must not really know God. He says in the same way, if you don't love your brothers and sisters, you must not have been saved either. To the same degree, in parallelism with the unrighteous life is nor is he who does not love his brother, who does not have Phil Adolphus. In fact, John thinks it's so essential that God has him repeat it in chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So he says here, you can't say that you love God if you're not loving your brother who's right in front of you. So if you're sitting here in church and you're wanting to be here and be like, I love God so much, I'm in church. Look how much I love God. God says, if you say you love me, but you don't love the people in here, you don't love me. You are a liar, sir. It is that essential to the Christian. So I hope you would be a fool right now to not be asking yourself, stink, do I love other people? (laughs) Right? It would be foolish to hear that verse, to be here proclaiming your love of God and have him say, you can say you love me, but if you don't love your brothers, you don't even know me. It would be foolish to hear him say that and not say, am I guilty of that? Or to at least say, God, please guard my heart so that I might never be guilty of that. Calvin says, it is a false boast when anyone says he loves God, but neglects God's image, which is right before his eyes. But how can it be expected of all Christians to love each other like family like this? Is it just expected that we'll be saved and then we'll work our way toward this and and we'll get there? It's expected of all Christians because this is one of the things that God explicitly and internally teaches all Christians. This is like instinct. This is Christian instinct. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 9. says now concerning brotherly love what he says you have no need for anyone to write to you you don't need me to write to you about brotherly love why for you yourselves have been taught by god to love one another you've been taught this is this is why the bible can say that if you don't love your brothers and sisters you must not be saved because god says he teaches all his children this truth in fact You don't even need anybody to write about it. We don't need any passages on brotherly love because you've all been taught this by God, that God teaches all his children this truth. This isn't something you need to get insight into or something you need to learn later as you grow as a Christian. This is something God whispers in the hearts of all his newborn believers, something he crafts there. In fact, brotherly love is so important That the Bible says, even if you're doing it and doing it well, it is so important. You should long to be better at it. That your brotherly affection, your family love should always be growing. So even if you're sitting here and you're looking at this church body and you're saying, I love her and I love him and I love her and I love him. And that's my brother and that's my sister and that's my mom and that's my dad and all this. Even if you're doing that. He says, if you're doing that, great. Now do it more. Where does he say that? In the next verse, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10. So he's just said, you don't need me to write to you. You've been taught this by God. In verse 10, he says, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this what? More. And what? More. So you're going to do it more? Then once you do it more, I want you to do it more on top of that. 
that God has taught you. So look at what he says here. He says, hey, God has taught you this and you're doing it. Your church is known for this. Your church is known as a church that loves each other. And it's known that way throughout the whole region. Throughout Macedonia, you are known as a church that loves like this. So what do you do now? He's not as sorry as he's about to be. Your church, their ch- so you hear all the time, we're a loving church. Listen, if you're not a loving church, you're not a church. And if you're a loving church, you know what you need to do? Be a more loving church. You're even, these people, you do it. You're known for it. People know that you're good at this. So what do I want you to do? Do it more and more. Be better at it, which is the same thing we already saw Peter say. And we, we looked at this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. I think we spent two weeks on it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Does anyone remember what that word earnestly means in the Greek? I'm sure you all do. So I'm going to answer for you anyway, so that we don't have a rushing of hands to try and answer. Remember that word earnestly means stretching out, outstretching, stretching out for it. He says, look, this is happening for brotherly love. So love one another earnestly. Stretch out to love one another. Let this be something that you are pursuing, that you're wanting. Want it more and more. Even if you're good at it, long to be better. Loving one another will stretch you. And that's good. Keep stretching. And if there's ever a time where you're stretching to love other believers and you're loving more than you did and it feels so good, you know what I can encourage you to do? Stretch some more. Because you know what you're going to feel after that? Even better. Because the Christian is called, hey, look, Christian, I want you to love your brothers and sisters and love them like this. So pursue brotherly love see other believers as your family because that's what they are and it it can be good to do so let's 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 talk some application here because the application is well what do i do with my real family right we're not talking about abandoning your and again what did what did you say what did we see there in those words my real family this is your real family in a way that your natural family does need to play now second fiddle to your real family in the same way that Christ said would happen with his own family. If his mother and his brothers did not hear his word and do it, they would not be his true mothers and his brothers. Now through God's grace, they did hear and do. And some of you have family that they are hearing and doing. That's good. They're still family. But you need to, there does need to be a recognition that God is calling for some sort of difference in your life. Some sort of distinction that recognizes this is my true family. Now, however you work that out, 
is on you. You can have wisdom in how to do that, but you need to be recognizing in your life that this family is real family. See, then look at how you treat your family. What do you do when your brothers come into your life and are in need? You're like, well, I got to do something. It's my brother. I got to do something. It's my mom or it's my son or whatever. Recognize that there is in Christ a distinction that this is a more true family. Now, of course, it'd be a great reason to share the gospel with your family and to pray earnestly for them. Because if your brother is not your brother, that should scare you. If your mother is not your mother, that should frighten you. And it will help us not be blasé. But remember the things that the Bible said in John that, that we're not, no one's born by, uh, by the will of the flesh or, or by blood or the will of flesh or the will of man, but by God. But this life will look different from the world. You're, the way, the one thing we need to recognize is, is God is calling the church to a, a type of life that is different from the world. And again, if you want to sit around and talk to me about how do I work this out? How do I do this? Because all of our family situations are different. We can go through a hundred different scenarios. But one thing that has to be true is recognizing this truth should change your life from the life of the world around you. In a way that the world looks at and goes, man, they're crazy. Look at all the family they've got. Or look at who they think their family is. They're acting as if they're really brothers and sisters. In fact, the early church was persecuted for this idea. As a bunch of weirdos. The Romans, this is why why Augustine had to write things like the city of God. Because the Romans were saying, these people drink blood and they treat each, they call each other brothers and sisters. It's really weird, right? The early church so took this to heart that the rest of the world said, there's something messed up about that group. Because they're not brothers and sisters, but they're treating each other like brothers and sisters. In fact, they're being loving to people who are not their natural, uh, natural family. So what does this mean for your life? So the question I, you always get when you talk about, it, does this mean I can't have Thanksgiving with my family, right? Which is one, a trite question, right? Two, what's this going to do for Christmas? Does this mean I can only have Christmas with, with church members? No, no, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Because the primary way we show love to one another is seen in passages like 1 Corinthians 13. Right? 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through the first part of verse 8, because I think verse 8 is like a segue between the two. This is how you show love to people as, as family. This is how you would show love to them. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's what your love needs to look like within the church. You have brotherly love. This is what love looks like. This is the type of love you should have for people in the church body. So you can ask, is this how I treat my church family? And that's really Paul's overall point in, the, in this chapter and in a lot of places in 1 Corinthians is to recognize even when it comes to church, it's not about you. 
And it's not about you. And if you come to church and it's about you and you decide whether or not they're feeding you or they're doing what you want them to do or whether or not people come up and, you know, I was there and no one shook my hand or they shook my hand, but I didn't like the way they shook my hand. Uh, I've heard people complain because no one said hi to them. And I've heard people complain because too many people said hi to them. Uh, And I just go, all right, whatever. Um, Paul's point is that it's not about you. One of the chief ways you can show love for the church's family is to love them selflessly. Love them selflessly within the church to, to not make church about you. And we do that. We, it's easy. So I'll go to church because I feel like going. Or I won't go to church because I don't feel like going. To, it's all I-centered. I. I don't want to go. Why not? Because I don't want to. Or I want to go. Why? Because I want to. To come here for God, but also for your family's sake. Because, I mean, First Corinthians 12 and 14 both say, that your place in this body is essential for the other members of the body's health. So when you're not here, you're stealing, you're robbing from the other members. You are a finger who has decided to amputate itself. And just like you would be annoyed if your finger decided to do that today, we cannot decide as church members just as that, you know what, I don't think I want to be there. Any more than you, again, you don't wake up and go, did all of my body parts decide to be here today? They did. I think I'm going to have a good day. You've got to recognize that you are essential to your brothers and sisters, lives, faith, even their Godwardness. Jesus tells us how we should treat our brothers in Matthew 25. I think this is really the the way you, you make sure that you're loving and treating them like family. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right, goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, this is the sheep, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, what? My brothers. So when you do this to my brothers, who are also their brothers, right? When you do this to your brothers, you did it to me. This is the type of love that we must have for our brothers and sisters. And as we know, if we don't have this type of love, what does Jesus say to the second group, to the goats? You didn't do this. And that shows that you're you're a goat. I must not have ever known you. In other words, if Christ knows you, this is how you will treat his brothers, And as believers, his brothers are your brothers, your sisters, your mothers, your fathers. So treating them like family is making sure that you care for the church body when they are, especially when they're in need. If you have a church member who's hungry, you'd better make sure that you go out of your way, even to steal from Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, even selling your stuff to make sure that they're fed. If they're thirsty, you go out of your way to make sure they get a drink. No, none of your family is ever going to go without food or drink. If they're a stranger, you're what you welcome. If they're naked, you clothe them. If they're sick, you visit them. If they're in prison, you come to them. It's about saying the rest of the world may forget about you, but I never will. 
After all, we're family. So again, it's not so much about how you handle the holidays, which is, I've had this discussion enough to know that's a natural question that we have. It's not about treating church members like family on particular days, but treating them as your family every day of your life. Just like your brother's not just your brother at Thanksgiving and your mom's not just your mom at Christmas. I would say more important than how you handle holidays is how you handle every day. And specifically, rather than holidays, is how you handle church. I think that should, I mean, if you want to know, how do I, how do I show that they're my family? I think this is the primary practice arena for godliness for believers. Are gathering together, which makes sense. It's not, do you treat people like family when you're not together? But do you treat them like family when you, when the family has gathered, do you treat them as family? If you, you know, it's church time. So right before church time, you scoot in and, and then you listen and then you get your stuff and you scoot out. If, if that's what you do, then there might be a problem with you. There might be a problem in family love. If you're like, either that or you're Catholic, right? You think I came, I did the mass, I heard the words, and I can leave. I got in to hear it, I heard it, and I can leave, and no one else is here. Just me and mine, and we're gone. Let's go back to the Thanksgiving question. What if someone did that at Thanksgiving? What if when the family was gathered for the holidays, you were the one who scooted in quietly, didn't say anything to anybody, sat in your chair, ate your meal, got up and walked out? You know what you'd be? The weirdo. You'd be the weirdo. And yet somehow, I, I, don't, I don't, again, because I'm Reformation minded, I always want to blame it on Catholicism. Somehow that's become the way we do church. You come in. You sit, it's over, you can leave. You ain't got to talk to nobody. You totally ignore your family in a way that you would never do in any other family gathering. The only reason that would happen is if you're not treating them like family because you would never treat your natural family that way. So if you treat your Christian family that way, there is something wrong. And it might be that the something wrong is you're just recognizing now for the first time that it is wrong. And you're going, oh, stink, that's what I do. Or maybe it's because you've been battling something and you're going, stink, what do I do? There's a, this is a special time for, I mean, that, that, even the words for worship, the words for church are the words for gathering together. This is a special time to worship the Lord, but it is also a time to be with family and that's how the early church saw it this is your family and this is our feast this time this is when your family feasts together singing praises to God and eating from his word and feasting upon our great salvation and so the chief time to work on brotherly love isn't on the holidays. It's on Sundays. In fact, how you handle holidays would cheapen what it's really calling you 
for here. What it's saying, it's about saying, I would give myself up for you, which is what Jesus said in John 15, 13. What do you say? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That word there, friends, is the word philos. Remember the start of the word Philadelphia? Your loved ones. No one has greater love than this, that he laid down his life for his loved ones. How do you treat your church like family? You die to yourself for their sake. Because that's the chief way you show love for those you love. I long to be a person and to be a people who grasps this. I know that it can only be spirit taught. I know that he is teaching us this like bumbling toddlers. And I rejoice that we will get it. And some of us will get it better than others. And some of us will have to be dragged along by our older brothers and sisters, by our mothers and fathers to grasp this better. But think about what life would look like. I think about, I always think about this when I think about funerals. I always think it's so funny that they have a special section for family rather than a special section for church. A special section just for those people who knew you the longest rather than those people who knew you the best. And so you'll have family that hadn't seen you in 20 or 30 years and they'll get to sit front and center and the church body is scattered to the sides and they're the ones who saw you every day and who will miss you every time they don't see you in the pew. These people will miss you, what, twice a year at best? So I've already told Leslie when I die, which will be soon, that when I die, I want them them to tell the funeral home, we do reserved for church and then reserved for family. And that might make my family mad, but I'll be dead, right? So, but I think, I also think what that means for church members when, when, when church members die. Do you recognize it as the loss of a brother or sister? I mean, we had a perfect example in Gordon and Mabel. We, we, have a, we had a mother and a father who are not able to be with us. How would you respond if your own mother or father were in a home away from you and couldn't be with you? How often would you visit? How much would you call? How would you make sure that they knew how important they were to you? Is that what we've done for them? Now, we're trying to do that. We're going to try and do something like this gathering of cards to make sure they know. Now everyone's going to be like, well, we better go home and make a card. <laughs> but that's, that's just an example of all the things that would change if we as a church believed this. Not something so trite as what would you do at Thanksgiving, but how it would change an infinite number of situations. The other thing we see is that you can't not be good at this and I'll be done. I could, I could go on and I just saw what time it was. I apologize. You can't not be good at this. At least you can't accept it if you're not good at this. We, we talk all the time about things like I'm an introvert, you know, or because of my past. I can, and so that's the reason I don't talk to anybody. It's just, you, you can't 
You can't not fellowship with other believers because it's hard. God doesn't give a pass to anybody to say, hey, you have brother, God have brotherly love. Unless you're really not a people person, in which case, you know, just whatever. This is something we all should pursue. You might struggle with loving a particular person. Well, one thing, I mean, just an honest thing here. If there's some, a lot of times when we talk about brotherly love, we don't think about how we shouldn't love everybody. We think about how we need to love that certain somebody in the church. Someone that we really struggle with. If you are struggling with someone at church and you've got ill feelings toward them, just practically, here's some things you can do. You know, I get along with this person and this person, but but this person I really struggle with. One, notice when I say that I'm not saying that there's a problem with being closer to some people than others. It's okay to have Jonathans in your life like David did, right? And so if you have a really, like I love Zach a whole lot and I probably love him more than I love most of you. Uh, You know, just... I just do. Uh, this is not, not that I don't love you, but I really love Zach. Uh, I, I'm not going to go, man, I think I love Zach too much. I should probably quit loving him and start loving somebody. It's not like a love quotient. You know, do this. What I'm talking about is if there's someone you see and you don't want to say hi to them, right? And you hope they don't say hi to you. Like that's a problem. Right? That's not brotherly affection. That's worldly brotherly affection because some of you don't want to say hi to your real brothers or sisters either, uh, but it's not how it should be. You recognize that's a problem in the real world and it's a problem in the Christian world. So just practically, what can you do? Two things. One, have they wronged you? If they've wronged you, how specifically have they wronged you? I'm talking chapter and verse of the Bible. Not just a general, well, they did this, or I don't like this, but... Tell me the verse that they are breaking, the scripture that they have wronged you with, and then deal with that. Get that dealt with. Because, uh, it, it, one, it's not good for them if there's a sin that they've done against you and they haven't, they haven't dealt with it. And they've wronged you and they're just sort of, they haven't been able to repent of it or to make it right. That's not good for them. And the fact that you don't want to see them shows that it's obviously not good for you either. And it hasn't helped you any. So either go to them and work it out or or go to the pastors and say, how do I work this out? Or you might go to them and they not want to work it out. Then you have to come to the pastors for another reason. But make sure that you don't just let it be a conflict with someone in the church if they've wronged you, if they've sinned against you. You say, they did this. The Bible says they shouldn't do that. And if you're looking at this and the person you're thinking about or the situation, you look at it and go, well, they haven't really sinned against me. Well, then the problem is you. That's the problem. If they haven't sinned against you, it's your sin that's the problem, not theirs. And again, it needs to be dealt with. So if if you have a problem with someone, you look and you don't, you're not excited to see them. You're like the world at Thanksgiving. It's like Thanksgiving is the worst thing. We all get together and we just yell at each other. And then we go home and I never get the pie I want. You know, if that's what, if that's what church life is for you, with a particular individual, you need to deal with it. If that's how you feel and they haven't wronged you, name what you're feeling toward them. My sin 
is pride. You know, I just feel like they don't think I'm as great as I think I'm great. Or the sin that I'm dealing with is envy. Maybe I don't like that their life has all these blessings and mine doesn't. Name the sin and then kill it. But do not accept the sin to just continue in your life and in your family. This also teaches us that the Christian life cannot be a solo mission. It can't be a solo mission and it can't just be a family mission. Like we've got to, we've got to be on this together. And this is this loving each other like family is hard for two groups. And then I'll really be done. It's hard for two groups to love people like family. It's hard for people who have lousy families. If you've got a lousy family relationship, those who have horrible families, you're going to think, you don't want me to think about you how I think about my sister (laughs) or how I think about my brother. And you've been so scarred by your family that you're reluctant to let anybody else fill that role that once hurt you so much. So you keep everyone at arm's length, right? Because you know what happens when family hurts you and it hurts so bad. So this is, this is like a nuclear bomb of problems to you. Because now I'm going to have, I've been wronged by my brothers and sisters. And now I'm about to add a whole bunch more brothers and sisters. It's also hard for those who have great families. That's the other group it's hard for. It's hard for people who have lousy families and it's hard for people who have great families. You struggle because you've already got it perfect. To add more family would be to stretch what is really a pretty nice and comfortable fabric. And so you're reluctant to add anyone, not because your family's been so bad. You're reluctant to add someone because it might mess up this whole thing that's been really great and Christmases are awesome and Thanksgiving's awesome and you think that's what it's all about and it's it's not so Peter says if God has saved you what should you do you should love your new family love each other because God has bonded you with an eternal bond and God has made for you a slew of mothers and fathers of brothers and sisters and then given you a love for them and encouraged you to maintain that love to cherish it to grow it for your good and for his glory let's pray as we bow our heads we do want to take a moment to pray to the lord we know it would be It would be foolish to hear from God's word and not pray to God about what we've heard. And we do not want to be a foolish church. You know, I'd be foolish people. So just ask the Lord, do you love church as family? Not just like family, but do you recognize they are your family? And you're as forgiving toward them as you would be to your own sons and daughters, your own brothers and sisters, your own mothers and fathers. And think, think, of, think of how desperately you love your, your family. Think of the obligations that you feel toward them. Now imagine that the church was that family. 
Are they an imperfect family? Certainly. But again, that's why we all fit right in. Because we are imperfect people being made perfect by a holy and perfect God. Father, we do thank you for what you've done for us. And God, if you've done this amazing thing and made us family and you go out of your way to tell us and to, to, to show us our difference from the world, that this, this is your family. This is. God, I, I want to get that. I want our lives to be different in recognizing that in the hundred different ways that it'll be different. But I want the world to see that I treat my church and the body of Christ as closer than even blood. Because we've been bought and brought together by something deeper than just the blood of mothers and fathers, but by the work of Christ. With a true and eternal family bond that will last us when the others fade away. And Father, with this, I pray for our natural blood families. I pray that we would have a heart that, that cries out to you to make them a part of our eternal family. That we might be united not just by a natural union, but by a supernatural one. And Father, we trust you and we thank you and we praise you for what you've done. Thank you for my new family who loves me because you love us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.